Hey there, and welcome to the Oscars Death Face podcast, where we try to watch all the Oscar-nominated movies or die trying. My name is Paulo, and I'm your host. Happy New Year, everyone. Hope everyone is doing everything is going well with you in 2024 so far. I myself had my own mini Death Race going into the new year. I had some outstanding film debts from the Academy of Death Racers server. Um, I lost a bet to a friend of the show, Dakota, from Contra Zoom Pod, about the box office of Asteroid City, with the stakes being that I, since I lose, I would have to watch all of Wes Anderson's feature filmography by the end of 2023, since I've been putting it off for who knows how many years. I was able to make it, plus also watch a couple more films that evening to get to 100 for the year. Now, technically, I watched 99 within 2023 and finished the 100th film just after midnight, but close enough, I would say. I still count that. It's not the actual death race. Um, so anyway, um, just getting back in movie watching safe for the Oscars. You know, that said, with being able to get to 100 films for the year, which is my you know goal every year, um, that actually had me putting together my list of the top 10 films and my favorite top favorite 10 films of of the year, um, which, you know, if you'll indulge me, I'll just go ahead and share those um, since, hey, when else do I get to, you know, talk at people about my, my favorite films? So first, my top, my best 10 films of the year, which, you know, are the films I think were the best made, per se, even if they're maybe not the most enjoyable films, but who I can respect more or less. Um, in alphabetical order, you know, no particular one on top of the other, um, these were After Sun, All of Us Strangers, Anatomy of a Fall, Evil Does Not Exist, Killers of the Flower Moon, Monster, Oppenheimer, Past Lives, Poor Things, and Zone of Interest. Um, obviously, a lot of Oscar contenders there, you know, After Sun being one from last year's Oscars, but I only watched it this year, so that's why I count it. Um, anyway, my favorite 10 films of the year, i.e. the ones I probably enjoyed the most, um, we have The Boy and the Heron, Dungeons and Dragons, Honor Amongst Thieves, The First Slam Dunk, Godzilla Minus One, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3, John Wick 4, The Menu, Perfect Days, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Mutant Mayhem, and Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse. So, you know, a lot of animated films here. You know, that last good Marvel film, honestly, that I think we're going to have for a while. Um, yeah, overall, pretty solid list. That, that definitely enjoyable. And I have some honorable mentions as well. You know, American Fiction didn't quite make my list either way. Um, but it did have the singular moment in a film that I laughed at the hardest. Um, Babylon, you know, the first film I watched for the year. Um, and, you know... It had its flaws, but I think overall it was outweighed. I just can't can't help but love this film so much. Um, so it definitely should have gotten more nominations at the Oscars. Um, Beyond Utopia, you know, watch this one. It's the be probably the best documentary of the year for the, for me. Uh, Confess Fletch, you know, a little film that, you know, a lot of people ha had hyped up. Um, you know, really enjoyable film. Not really any awards film, but I, I ended up watching it on a plane ride. Um, and it was just loads of fun. Definitely uh, recommend. Um, Manila in the Claws of Light. You know, I did a project for Dakota for his podcast about Filipino cinema. And, you know, this was the best of those films I watched. And, you know, just a chance for me to reconnect with Filipino film in general. And then the Grand Budapest Hotel in honor of that Wes Anderson filmography watch that I did. Um, now, you know, if you have your own personal top 10 you want to share with me, I'm actually running a survey for the next week or so. You know, uh, I've posted both uh, all both in the Academy of Death Racers Discord as well as on Reddit in both the Oscars Race and Oscars Death Race subreddits. Um, I'm asking people, you know, what are your top 10 films, however you define that for the year, as well as your top 10 most anticipated films for next year. Um, I'm going to tabulate those numbers up, you know, and share the results for, you know, what were people's top films of the year. Um, in addition, for you know, for some projects I have for later this season, I, you know, I want to put together a panel, so to speak, of people's uh, letterbox scores. You know, ask people, hey, give me a letterbox, and you know, I want to see what this community of, of Oscar uh, Oscar um, uh, fans, you know, people who are into the Oscars. 
or Oscars enthusiasts um, have to say about, you know, Kills of the Flower Moon, what's the average rating for that, as opposed to, say, Maestro, um, you know, we can do that using people's letterbox scores. So, you know, that, that's just something I want to do later on and get people's letterbox ahead of that. Anyway, uh, links to that will be in the show notes uh, below. Um, anyway, before uh, speaking of getting back into the death race, we also have some uh, some news, right? Um, well, first off, you know, I, I last episode I had, you know, here are the fortieth films that I think you should watch on the prep for the death race. I'm not going to list them all out here again, um, but I took myself. I'm actually about eighteen or so away. Technically, it's like 42 or so, um, given that I gave a couple alternates, but, you know, about 18 or so away from being complete. It's so about halfway done. Um, you know, two of those, Ferrari and Wonka, I'm probably going to try to catch uh, in, the ne- in the next couple of, uh, next couple of weeks or so while they're still in theaters. And then three of those, uh, The Peasants and Robot Dreams, which are for animated, and then Totem, which is a, an international film. Um, they have release dates, hopefully later in January or February or so, um, with the rest being already available on streaming. So, you know, if the death race pans out as I predicted to be, this would be pretty straightforward. Aside from the sorts. Um, now, based on the Oscar news, though, I think I'm going to have to act- actually add air to that list of predictions. Now, the Academy officially uh, clarified at the, time, at the day of recording that Barbie will actually be competing in the adapted screenplay category as opposed to original screenplay. Um, this unfortunately makes it that much harder for all of us strangers to make it into screenplay, as you know, I think at this point it's a fairly locked down Kills the Flower Moon, Oppenheimer, Poor Things, American Fiction, and now Barbie um, as the five adapted. Adapted screenplay nominees. Um, this does open up a slot in original screenplay. Um, you know, the other four that were kind of, you know, I, I think pretty safe were Fast uh, Past Lives, The Holdovers, Anatomy of a Fall, and May December, with, you know, Barbie ostensibly having been that fifth uh, uh, original screenplay. Now, with Barbie out of the race, you know, the, uh, someone else can come in now. People might say, you know, Master is kind of the one that already has a lot of buzz. You know, I'm, I'm going to say right now, I think Air, you know, this might be the place where they reward Air and, and the only place they do so for Air. Um, though I would also say a boy in the hero nomination would be pretty uh, divine, in my opinion. But we'll see how things pan out uh, come nomination day. Uh, finally, before we get into this episode, you know, I also want to give you a reminder that the Academy of Death Facers Film Festival will be starting this coming Friday the 5th and run through January 21st. Uh, there are nine shortlisted films running in the festival, all which you can see all of the films over 50 for only $6. Plus, there'll be some also Q&As, extras, you know, done with the filmmakers um, in, for the special presentation films. And I actually had the honor of helping out the film festival committee with doing some of these Q&As. Um, one of them is going to be with the film Campfire by Austin Bunn. Um, and the other is going to be Bibisitos with uh, MJ Garcia. Um, so, you know, I'm going to, those those interviews will be up on the Academy of Death Races Festival page once I'm done editing them. Um, I'm also going to drop them onto uh, my onto this feed here with the first one coming later this week. So be sure to get your tickets uh, and check out that film festival. Definitely, you know, support the community, um, you know, and then join and then just get, watch some good films. You know, what, what else can you ask for? Anyway, speaking of film festivals, this week we have on my dear friend Alex Atienza. Alex has been on the show twice, making this his third appearance in a row. Um, Alex is a professional editor, actually, who works on a number, who's worked on a number of projects, most recently a documentary. Um, he's also been able to attend Cannes multiple times, as well as a couple other film festivals. He was at the Locarno Film Festival earlier this year. Um, I really appreciate having him on. You know, he's one of the most film knowledgeable guys that I know, and also just having his professional opinion about what does and doesn't work technically. 
from an editing perspective, you know, really uh, gets insight of what may or may not work. It also puts them in context of these filmmakers' other works. Um, this episode will be talking about, you know, given that his attendance at film festivals, um, Anatomy of a Fall, uh, Zone of Interest, and American Fiction, all of which, you know, did pretty well at the film festivals this year. Um, in the process of doing so, we actually concluded this could also just as well have been an episode about films with ambiguous endings. But in any case, let's not make this ambiguous. Let's go ahead, st- hop, hop and straighten the episode for this week with Alex. And all right, joining me for, I believe, his third time on the podcast is my college friend, uh, professional editor, uh, and, you know, one of the most intelligent people I know when it comes to movies, uh, Alex Atienza. Welcome back to the podcast, Alex. Thank you so much for having me back. It's such a pleasure. This is going to be my third time, and I'm very much looking forward to it. Awesome. And for anyone, you know, who maybe this is their first season, you know, um, you know, Alex was my, my friend in college. We were both in the Filipino Student Association. Like I mentioned, uh, he currently is a professional editor uh, working on documentaries and other films as well. And he also has been to quite a few film festivals. So, you know, Alex, since the last time, you know, what, what have you been up to in the last year, you know, as, as a professional editor? Sure. So I just finished editing my first nonfiction film. It's a documentary called Freak Bikes. And it's about a cycling activist named Jimmy Lazama, who founded the Bike Kitchen in, in LA. And he goes on a cycling trip through Northern Europe with his younger son. And it kind of the film explores this of uh, the intergenerational differences, the kind of tensions that might arise when uh, a, a child doesn't necessarily share the interests of a parent, and how they can con- sort of come to terms with their of differing points of view. Um, And that's going to, there's going to be a screening of it, I think, um, at the start of next January, I forgot exactly when. Um, But there's going to be, I think, we're planning on submitting it to a few festivals. And I'm really hoping, looking forward to seeing what people's response to it is. Awesome. yeah, be sure whenever you know whenever you can get the screening out or whatever or information about. It, let me know, and I'll definitely you know put it out here on the on the podcast for sure. But yeah, yeah what no. else? What else are you working on? So, right after I finished that, I started working on my next feature, which is an independent horror um, psychological thriller slash art film called Worm, and it was shot in I believe Wales, and it has to do with this um, couple who are vacationing um, in a secluded region in the countryside. And it's kind of like Ingmar Bergman's persona, if you haven't seen that. And it blurs the distinction between subjective and objective reality. And I think it's really exciting and fascinating. And I'm, I'm also excited to get that out as well. We're currently working on the director's cut, and hopefully we'll wrap editing on that at the start of next year. Awesome. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, definitely looking forward to seeing that as well. I feel, you know, it's always cool to hear how you're like actually work. Like, you know, I, I talk a lot of game about, you know, knowing what's going to get in the Oscars or whatever. But, you know, it's always nice to have like a, the perspective of someone who's actually working in the industry for sure uh, to help kind of ground my expectations somewhat. Um, yeah, and then also, you know, one of the things, you know, I know, you know, for many years you've gone to Europe specifically for various film festivals. So I believe that was the case again this year as well, correct? That's right. So for the past three years, I believe I've been able to I've been very fortunate to be able to attend the Cannes Film Festival um, starting in so in 2021. And earlier this year, I was able to go and I was able to see the premieres of Zone of Interest, which I was very excited for. It's being the uh, first um, film by Jonathan Glazer in like 10 years. And I really love his work. And I was able to see a lot of others that I was really looking forward to as well. Yeah, then, which, other ones, which other ones did you see at, at Cannes? 
So the other ones I saw at Cannes this year, let me try to remember. I got I saw um, How to Have Sex, mm-hmm. which was recently released on Mubi. It was by this um, young British film, filmmaker, um, kind of a rising star, and it has to do with this coming-of-age story about this um, teenager and her kind of realizing the kind of um, her role in the world and the kind of sexual politics, like coming of age. It's really, it was really wonderful. Um, what else? And Anatomy, actually, I didn't see it, Can I saw that when I went to Locarno a couple months later, when I went to Switzerland in um, at, towards the end of July and the start of August. And what else did I see there? Um, I have to remember what it is, but I, Zone of Interest was my number one. I actually saw it twice while I was there. <laughs> Um, because I had, to, I felt like I knew I was, I was going to want to talk about that um, yeah. with some of my peers when when I returned. Yeah, for sure. And I'm, just, you know, who knows? Maybe you'll be back again next year for Furiosa, perhaps. Yeah, I mean, so I I was also at the premiere for uh, for his previous movie, um, Three Thousand Years of Longing. Very odd film. Not sure what it's doing here, but it'd be great to see um, George Miller back at Cannes. Hopefully next year. Okay. Yeah. And you mentioned you're at Lucarna. And I believe that was part of a, you, we met, we talked a little bit off air, but you know, you, you mentioned that was part of like a, a film, film, pro, a filmmakers program or something like that, correct? Right. So as part of this like sort of talent incubator campus type situation, it's very new. This is only the second year they've been doing it. Um, and it's open to people from all around the world. And you get to stay at the festival for free. Um, you've got free lodging, free passes to the whole festival, and you also get to attend these exclusive talks with some of the invited filmmakers. So I got to see this one Taiwanese filmmaker, Tsai Ming Long, who did Goodbye Dragon Inn. He, he, the, his most recent film was Days. Um, very kind of slow-paced, meditative type of filmmaking. Um, it was really great to be able to kind of um, ask them questions in person. Uh, I think it was a really wonderful experience, and I, if anyone has the chance to go to Locarno, I'd definitely recommend it. It's definitely not as like uh, glitzy and glamorous as Cannes or Venice or Berlin, but I think that's actually the advantage of it because you know the filmmakers and celebrities are not getting in a limousine and driving away the movie moment the movie ends, right? They they kind of stick around, hang out afterwards, and you can like actually go up and approach them without being like mobbed by people. So I I really appreciated that aspect of the festival as well. Awesome. Yeah, I mean, I got to actually, I mean, I've, I here in New York, obviously, there's a lot of film festivals. I've been to like the, you know, mostly the Asian theme festivals, so like the Asian American International Film Festival, the New York Asian Film Festival. This year was actually my first year actually going to the New York Film Festival, mm-hmm. um, where that's where I saw so- Zone of Interest. And they had like a QA and a with, with Glazer and, and, and the sound and the, the cast and, and the sound, um, the sound editor as well. Um, so, you know, that was, that was a pretty cool experience. So, you know, uh, first for me to, to go to like, I guess one of the big film festivals, so to speak. Um, but yeah, I figured, you know, this, this episode, you know, we had to shuffle some things around from what I initially had planned, but, you know, you know, we figured, you know, based off of Alex's experience with film festivals, we're going to talk about three films in this year's death race that have been, have kind of quote unquote dominated the film festival circuit. First up, we're going to have the Golden Palm winner from Cannes, Anatomy of a Fall, which you know Alex saw at at, um, at Los Carno. Um, we also um, we also have the Grand Prix and uh, Fipreski Award winner, his you know most anticipated film, Zone of Interest, which again I saw at the New York Film Festival. Um, both of these, you know, I have a chart where you know obviously doing like the Oscar prep. I have a chart where I'm keeping track of like the major film festivals, and these were the only ones I could find that actually attended four of the five major film festivals. Both of them were at. 
at Cannes, at Telluride, at Toronto, and at New York Film Festival. Um, they only missed, missed Venice because Venice has the requirement you have to de- debut at Venice. Um, and then, you know, there also was, you know, somewhat of a bit of a dark horse, kind of la- relatively late into the race, um, with uh, Court Jefferson's debut film, American Fiction, um, kind of swooping in and taking the TIFF uh, People's Choice Award, um, coming in ahead of the holdovers and Miyazaki's Boy in the Heron, you know, given as a very, very strong correlation with the winner of the, of the PCA Award getting nominated for um, you know best picture eventually right so you know we had Jojo Rabbit several years ago we had uh, um, we had the Fablemans last year um, it's a pretty good shot that that at uh, Cord Jefferson and uh, and American Fiction will show up in the Oscar the best picture ten um, this year and if not at the very least it should get at least I think one or two above the line nominations. So we're going to go ahead and do it in, in order. So let's go ahead and start with Anatomy of a Fall. So this one is directed and co-written by Justin Triette. It's a French film telling the story of Sandra Voiter, a writer who must try to prove her innocence in her late husband's death, falling from their chalet in the French Alps. Um, as noted, it debuted at Cannes, where it won the Palme d'Or, as well as the arguably more important uh Golden Palm Dog Award um, before being picked up by Neon for distribution. Stateside Word was released in early October. Um, somewhat controversially, it was not submitted to be France's submission for international feature film, but it still has managed to garner multiple awards thus far in the kind of like the award season. Notably, it won Best International Film or Foreign Language Film at both the New York and Los Angeles Film Critics Circles, um, at the Gotham Awards, the British Independent Film Awards, the National Board of Review, and the Best European Film from the European Film Awards. It's currently nominated for four Golden Globes, has two Critics' Choice Award nominations, six Lumiere Awards, which is France's equivalent of the Globes, three Satellite Award nominations, and Best International Film nomination at the Independent Spirit Awards. On Metacritic, it has an 86 uh, uh, out of 43 reviews. Rotten Tomatoes is 96 out of 219 reviews with an 8.6 score. And Letterboxd is 4.19 out of 140,000 reviews. Currently on Gold Derby, the, uh, the current re- predictions are that it is ninth for Best Picture, Ninth for Best Director, tech director for Justin Trier. Uh, fourth for Sandra Huller for Best Actress. Um, fourth for Original Screenplay for both Trier and Arthur Harari. And then Best Editing, Laura, uh, Lauren Senesal comes in at seven. So quite a, a bit outside the top five, but definitely still has a shot. So Alex, let's start with your thoughts. What were your thoughts when you saw uh, Anatomy of a Fall uh, at, at Locarno? Yeah, it was, I mean, it was really exciting, really wonderful. I mean, my uh, friend and I, when we went to the screening, it was on the Piazza, Locarno has screens all of the big films out in this open air square, it was almost completely full. We were sitting all the way in the back and we were really excited because we knew we heard of all of the hype coming out of Cannes and we were really eager to see it. Um, and the film itself is really intriguing, really exciting. Um, something that I was thinking of while I was watching the film was that I was really a frame of reference that I had was the films of actually Asghar Farhadi, who had won uh, Best Foreign Film multiple times for the Oscars previously uh, for A Separation and for The Salesman. And then, so I was thinking of, um, because Farhadi has a really uh, very deft and very sophisticated way of setting up the individual plot elements in order to create a very intriguing mystery. And in that way, he kind of dramatizes the inherent ambiguity, moral ambiguity of the situation he's, descri- he's depicting. And so um, that that was so a separation is like one of my uh, you know favorite films of the past decade, and so that kind of served as the standard to which I was comparing Anatomy of Fall towards when it comes to the sort of like legal like domestic um, dramas. And I think 
on one hand, it managed to create something that was very compelling, but at the same time, I felt like the ambiguity was not quite there. I thought it was very exciting. The performances are excellent. Uh, Sandra Hüller, amazing. I, I would not be surprised if she, you know, this got gained her, you know, a, a nomination or even a win, the same way Marion Cotillard did for Love Young Rose many years ago, back in two thousand seven. That's without a doubt screenplay too. But at the same time, I wanted to sympathize with her character a little less. At the beginning of the film, you know, we kind of get the sense that okay, you know, the the wife is going to be blamed for the spouse's death. Um, but I wanted, and we're kind of put in her perspective a bit, but I wanted something a bit more ambiguous. I, I felt sorry for her throughout the whole film. I was sympathizing with her and I was, I was always saying, oh, you know, she's in innocent. She is innocent. But I was still was waiting for that moment to come where I could really say to myself, but what, what if she wasn't? Now, at the same time, I understand people's, you know, uh, people talk to me after the screening and say, well, it's not really about who, whether she did it or did she not. It's really about the narratives that we construct. How do we interpret the events based on, like, you know, information that's being given to us? And I think I understand it, but I think if we were, if the film was able to dramatize that by creating innately ambiguous circumstances and being able to set that up in a very specific way that guided audience toward that conclusion, then I think it would have been a little bit more satisfying. But that being said, I'm being very nitpicky, I think. <laughs> I think overall, I thought it was very wonderful. I think that um, at this rate, I would not be surprised if it did. Um, I, I definitely think it's going to get a Best Picture nomination. I wouldn't be that surprised if it did win. You look at Neon's track record for the past several films, um, for instance. Uh, while, while I was at Cannes, something, uh, something that my friends and I came up with with regard to deciding, trying to figure out who was going to win the Golden Palm that year was finding out which films did Neon pick up. Because ne every film that Neon has picked up in the past several years has gone on to get Golden Palm. And then they would put out this really big Oscar campaign for it. You know, you look, did that for Parasite, they did that for um, Triangle of Sadness, and did it for a lot of the previous films. I think this has a really strong, you know, this has a really so solid chance at gaining more attention during the Oscars. And I wouldn't be surprised if it went on to win many of those nominations. Yeah. So for me, like, so what you're talking about, going back to what you mentioned about it being not quite as ambiguous, right? So you're, for you, it was like pretty clear that she didn't do it, correct? Right. Or not right. even that I was clear that she didn't do it. I think that we sympathize with her to the point where we can assume that she didn't do it. That That's kind of like, didn't. yeah. Okay, fair enough. I could see a case where, Maybe you have a certain perspective on on the world or on life, right? So, like, for example, right? I think I'm predispo predisposed to well, predisposed to taking her side, mostly because I think that the uh, the prosecutor in this case, right? Um, I don't know the name of the actor. He did a really good job at being kind of a jerk, um, especially when it comes into play, like questioning his her husband's mental health. Which you know, as someone who you know has a lot of thoughts about the way mental health is described in in today's society. Definitely didn't put him on like my my great side. I could definitely see, you know, maybe this might be a cultural difference. Maybe there's something in within European culture. I can't say for sure that maybe you know some of the things that they bring up might make her seem a little bit more guilty than, than it might otherwise. Um, so maybe that might be a cultural difference there. Um, but you know, I think you know, like your friend said, it's not about. I, I really enjoy it. I think kind of like the meta approach that they ended up taking, where you know, it's not a, where it's it's the story is about 
uh, isn't about whether or not she she did it or not. It's about the like you mentioned, like whether like, the whole narrative. And I think for me, someone who's not getting the the love that that I think they they should this award season, which probably is due to their age more than anything else, is the uh, um, is the son character um, who I'm pulling up his name right now. Um, uh, what's it? Uh, Milo Machado Grainer, um, the act, the actor who plays her, the 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 blind son. Um, I think he did a phenomenal job, kind of like as a young actor, kind mm-hmm. of going throughout the film, his perspective, and kind of like you know whether or not he like he comes to realize. I think you know that it doesn't matter what people think, or what actually happened, because for him it was like I want to know what happened. I think the the truth is not. The truth is not what actually happened; it's what people think happened, and that's where at the end that narrative that he gives about his dad and the car. I think I believe I think that's the more interesting question: did that actually happen, or is that a narrative that he made up um, to kind of get the, the the jury to to go with his mom's side? Um, what do you think? Do you think that happened, or that it was made up? So, if I'm not mistaken, I'm trying to remember what exactly happens in, in this last. Final yeah, so act. like, like he. What, so what, ha- what happens was that again we have we have this is spoil a spoiler conversation. So, but you know, see, they go through all the trial. It, lo- it doesn't look good. He ends up, um, he ends up, you know, uh, poisoning the dog, which was not great. Um, to like basically see like, oh, like did did my dad actually try to kill himself, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then he asks. He basically says he wants to give another testimony again. Basically, and then kind of like at that testimony, he he asks, "Is that all?" Right? Like, you know, the, the prosecutor is like, "Oh, it's cool you did this experiment, but that doesn't actually prove anything, right?" And then he gives this testimony about how he was driving with his dad to, I think, like he was driving with his dad, I think, to bring the doctor to the vet or something. And it, essentially, the dad gives this um, gives this talk about how things were sad and kind of hinting at at his own depression, which suggests that maybe he killed himself, basically, right? right? And that's and the question: is, is that narrative fabricated? by the sun or is it um or did that actually happen or not right okay i I think i realize what it is that inclined me towards a more sympathetic view of the mother using that as a specific example because i think in that last act we have a flashback where we actually see the conversation take place in the car right and i think in to me at least and these are my own personal biases that whenever we see something happen depicted in a flashback that normally i normally interpret that that as saying that the film saying that it actually happened as opposed to it as you know for instance if the film were just simply to rely on his testimony and then the son says okay he said this to me blah 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 but we don't see the flashback i feel like in that instance it would be genuinely ambiguous but then when we see actually this conversation take place that kind of removes some of the ambiguity for me and in that case i think we can assume interesting that so so I want to ask them about this another scene that they they flash back to. It's the recording scene, right? They played this recording that they found. You know, the husband is trying to be a writer. He he recording his life. So he doesn't know about it, and they end up recording this argument basically about you know finances. Just a couple a, a argument that this couple had at one point, and then it gets to you. You see them acting out what the conversation was, and and then it ends up. At the very end, it flashes. It flashes out. It cuts out, and then you just hear you hear, you see the people's reaction to hearing the audio in the courtroom. As you hear like impacts in the in the uh, in the audio, she says that you know she didn't hit him. He was hitting himself because you know he was upset or whatever, right? Um, but they don't know that, right? So I think that's another case where or I think that was, as an editor, right? What, what would, how do you say that that scene was constructed? Because for, for me, I think it was really clever. Where it's like, hey. This is the what hap- This is what people. What what 
probably happened, right? But we don't know for sure what happened. And then leaving it to ambiguity of, hey, like, was he hitting himself or did she, or did she make up that he was hitting himself basically afterwards? Like, I think, I thought that whole sequence was masterfully crafted. If there's a scene that got her the Oscar or gets her a nomination, I think that is the scene in particular. I think so too. I think, like I said earlier, her strong performances from Hula throughout, as well as the actor who played the husband. This name is skipping my mind, and I feel a little embarrassed because he also did such a great job with it. Um, but insofar as the way that scene is constructed, where it is revealed that there has been this audio recording, and then we see the flashback play out, it's, there's this really interesting sleight of hand that occurs because it elides some of the information, like you're saying, and some of part of the audio. You know what actually happened is left to the audience's imagination. Yeah. Uh, uh, the the actor's name is Samuel Tias, by the way. Okay, um, Samuel Tias. Okay, yeah. and he wonderful performance from him. Also, how he's able to kind of um, introduce a slight possibility that yes, he w- did indeed hit himself, and that he was, um, you know, he was going through mental health issues. He was depressed, but I feel like at the same time, he, I'm not sure. The question of his um, or her innocence is going to hinge upon that small section of the audio that we don't see depicted in a flashback, right? This scene goes on for quite a long time, and we see the whole conversation kind of roll out. And I, I think, you know, leaving out that last bit where we, you know, are faced to question, oh, did he hit himself or did he hit her? It's almost kind of like beside the point at that point, because we already see like the overall context of what did indeed happen. And I feel like that would already bias viewers towards one or the other. Mm, okay. Yeah. I guess, I guess like, if you take it as flashback means it happened, if it's still on screen, it's an objective truth that it happened. That would be one take. But then I think that that's, I think that's what this film is. It can get, can get clever. If it goes to another layer of, did it actually happen? Is it a, is it an reliable narrator, an unreliable narrator at that point, right? Mm-hmm. Um, which is, I think, you know, props to Justine Trey, props to Arthur Harari for putting together like a screenplay like this. Like right now, she's out of the top five for best director. I seriously think she might be able to sneak into best director, kind of like the director of Triangle of Sadness did last year as well. Yeah, definitely, and I think that I think the only uh, I mean I feel bad bringing up these issues because, I, like I said, I feel like I'm nitpicking a bit, but I think what the success of the film or failure hinges upon is the difference between ambiguity that's created by withholding information and ambiguity that's created by deliberately misleading the audience. Mm, And those to me are two very different things, right? If you're deliberately misleading the audience to believe one thing, it's not as, to me, satisfying as when you're simply creating ambiguity by not seeing what indeed happened or not. And I think that to me was what, um, that to me is kind of where whether or not the film is successful or not hinges upon. Fair enough, fair enough. What did you think of the editing, right? It being this is your specialty, like what did you think of like, any any specific edits within the film that, that stick out to you? I, I mean, overall, it seemed to kind of rely on this um, non-linear uh, mm-hmm. aspect, right? Which is really, it's very strange because I think throughout the whole film, you get little bits of pieces of flashbacks. It's not like you would get in a typical legal drama where all of the flashbacks are kind of confined to the courtroom sequences. You have it in her discussions with her lawyer. You have it in the conversations with the son. Um, and I think overall, it, it was very, it felt almost a bit disorienting because that's not really what I would be expecting in these particular cases given uh, what your- The structure of a, of a typical courtroom film, right? Right. Um, but was I think to me what stood out to me were the moments where we see the recreations mm, of okay. of the potential ways in which the accident 
or murder might have happened, right? Where you see, I think, um, like the, a dummy like falling from the mm-hmm. balcony, and you see them trying to reconstruct that. I thought that was really a fascinating way of illustrating people trying to like logically re- reach a conclusion through deduction, mm-hmm. and, and it's not just you know uh, linked to specific memories of individual characters, but it more it's like them trying to piece together these narratives, like we were saying earlier. Right, it's a way it's a way to convey information without getting too bogged down in the technical details so much. Or, or I suppose it's a way of um, presupposing the possibility of an objective point of view where there n- might not be any. So you got these contrasting narratives, right? And here is like them trying to say, is this objective or not? You know, and then you see like the diagrams of like how the body fell and you see like where the blood spattered on you know, the side of the wall of the building. I thought that was really uh, engaging to watch. Yeah. I mean, I think the fact that we have so much debate and so much thought, so many thoughts about this film puts it in a good place, I think, for, for award season, for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, moving on, you know, we're going to ha- go ahead and, and, and try to keep it moving. We're going to go ahead and talk about, I think, you mentioned this was your most anticipated film of the festival, Zone of Interest. So this was based on a 2014 novel of the same name by Martin Ami. Um, the film is written and directed by Jonathan Glazer and centers on the Auschwitz commandant, uh, Rudolf Hoss, played by Christian Fried and uh, Friedel and his wife, um, who it's, it's, this is a second appearance of Sandra Huller um, in this episode. Um, and they build. They try to build their dream life right next to the concentration camp in question. They debuted at Cannes, won the Grand Prix and the Fipresky Awards, and it was ended up pick, being picked up by A24 for distribution. It's had a limited release this December and will go r- wide on January 7th. It is the UK submission for international feature for which it, w- it has been shortlisted. It has been named the LA Film Critic uh, Association's Best Film of the Year and is the top five international film for the National Board of Review. It has also been nominated for three Golden Globes, three Satellite Awards, and the Independent Spirit Award, as well as the Critics' Choice Best International Film Awards. Currently has a Metacritic of 91 out of 45 reviews, Rotten Tomato of 92 out of 161 reviews with an 8.7 score, and Letterboxd has a 4.06 out of 15,000 reviews. Over on Gold Derby, it is currently the number 10, it's kind of in that 10, number 10 spot, so kind of uh, hopefully we'll, we'll make it in, into the into best picture. Um, Jonathan Glazer is currently number 5 for best director, as well as also number 5 for adapted screenplay. Uh, Lucas Zal um, uh, has a number 5, is currently number 5 for cinematography, and then Michael Le- uh, Levi, Levi um, is uh, shortlisted at number five for best score, um, and also best uh, is also number five for the shortlist for best sound. Which fun fact, apparently, this is the same sound designer um, as the one person who did Poor Things. Actually, um, it is also currently the number one favorite for best international film, uh, and also obviously is on the shortlist there. So again. Uh, Alex, we're going to throw it to you. This is one of your most anticipated films of the year. So uh, let us know did it, how did, how it lived up to the hype, if at all. Sure. I just want to give a little context as to why it was my most anticipated for the year, because I really do adore Jonathan Glaze's work. He, this is only his fourth f- uh, feature film, if I'm not mistaken. He did Sexy Beast, then Birth, starring Nicole Kidman, and then Under the Skin, starring Scarlett Johansson, and now Zone of Interest. And I've loved his past three films, especially Under the Skin, which is a, a sci-fi film about um, an alien played by Johansson who comes down to Earth and begins to abduct humans. But it's done in such a strange, alienating style. Like it, It's like you're looking through a point of view at human society, and it becomes a bit unfamiliar. Um, it's also very unnerving at the same time, and that's what really made me excited for his next film because of his ability to kind of shake our preconceptions of what can be uh, presented in cinema. So when I heard this was going to be a Holocaust film, I knew that it was not going to be your typical 
a Holocaust movie, he's going to do something very, very different. And I think it was, it is a very challenging watch. It's, you know, the cameras are set up in such a way that they're almost all completely wide static shots. Um, and you, you are all distant from the action. It's almost like we're watching uh, these people's lives unfold from the security cameras, right? It's very eerie. It's a bit, it cult, you know, cultivates this air of paranoia and it's very appropriate given the subject matter. Um, and the reason for that is because they, what Jonathan Glazer did is that he um, and the cinematographer Lucas Zal hid cameras throughout the set, um, such that the everything was being shot multicam and actors were able to move freely around, while the rest of the film crew was off the set somewhere else, which is a bit similar to what Jonathan Glazer did in Under the Skin. In Under the Skin, he had uh, Scarlett Johansson drive around in a van with hidden cameras inside the van as she picked up strangers and then drove them to the the house where the alien was staying to abduct them. And I thought that was great because then he expands this concept to a whole house and that allows actors to have a bit more naturalistic performance. Um, and it's also just, like I said earlier, very, very kind of unsettling in terms of images that you end up getting because of how kind of remote and removed it all is. And I think there's also a good thematic point to be made about this style of shooting as well. Something that I think a lot, some um, filmmakers and some critics have a, a point that they've made about the way the Holocaust have been has been represented in film and by Hollywood specifically over the past years is that there's a tendency to, to sensationalize it a little. So I think that by withholding from like these grand emotions and by staying a bit further back from the action, we are, uh, Glazer is not letting the audience indulge in these sort of um, cliched or reactions to the subject matter. Also, because we don't really see what happens inside Auschwitz camp itself. We're all just confined to the house. So I thought it was a very smart move to shoot the entire film this way. And I think that's what made it um, apparent, you know, to me the first time watching that it was going to be a very brilliant film. Yeah, I would say so. I, I, I saw this at the New York Film Festival. There was a Q&A after, after my screening with, with the director and, and the cast and the product producer and the sound designer. And I think the, one of the things they mentioned why they wanted to go with these extra wide lenses and do these long takes, a uh, couple of things. One, it, it for the actors, right, it let them feel more lived in the role, right? Like, you know, without all the directions and, and directors so they could kind of inhabit that space. Um, the other, I think, was to avoid the trope of, you know, the hard part is, right, like, there, there, was, there was, you know, within a, like, some people, if, if they, they see in a film the protagonist, right, or, like, the main character is, you know, here a Nazi, right, um, you you run the risk of, of trying to get in their head, trying to, and, and potentially causing sympathy for them, Right within the film, right, and here, absent you know glamour lighting, absent the uh, the close up you know hero shots of the face, you're avoiding that while still documenting the life, right? Which so I think was a really clever way of doing that. Um, I want one thing I really want to talk about, and I'm really excited. I really hope this gets shortlisted for or gets nominated for sound because I think the sound is what really takes this film to that next level, right? It'll be one thing if, okay, like you have, you know, the way the camera is, is set up is like you don't see above, you barely see just above the wall, right? That's a, and you barely see like the buildings on the other side of the camp. But it's the sound of hearing everything going on in the background while they're playing in the pool or setting up a picnic in the in the summer in the in the summer, right? Hearing you know the the, the wailing, the the crying, the steam and the engine, the burning, the furnaces um, at night. I think is really what you know. There's the the, the they describe it as the see, the film you see, 
and then the film you hear, and then there are two films running simultaneously that are greater than the sum of their parts, I think, is what really makes, I think, without that sound, without the sound design, it would not have been the film it was. Another thing I want to call it is apparently they actually used, um, they, 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 they built uh, a house, uh, the, the set was built next to Auschwitz itself. Like, this wasn't the set. It was actually built at the concentration camp. Apparently, their production designer, like, grew a garden in, like, five months, basically, to, like, get to, like, recreate it, basically. So I thought that was um, that was really cool as well. I don't think it'll get... I don't know if it'll get um, recognition, uh, but, you know, I think that would be pretty cool to see, you know, the fact that this house and the way it's lived in, I think, really contributes to the film itself because you really get a good sense of the space of the house thanks to the multicam setup. Um question for you right how would you go about like editing something like this like with all these multi-cam setups and you know tracking people around the house right like like how how do you think they did it in that regard it's really interesting because i think while i was watching it using my editor's eyes okay i didn't know yet that it was shot multi-cam because i only found that out when i listened to a uh, a panel discussion afterwards but watching i felt Yes, this is, must have been shot multicam because when the camera, when it cuts to another camera, it's never facing the opposite direction. Because when the camera is facing the opposite direction, then the other camera appears inside the, the shot, right? Yeah. So you can see that from shot to shot, it's never quite lining up, which I thought was really, it kind of contributes that un, un, unnerving atmosphere. But also while watching it, as the, you know, being an editor, I kind of noticed yeah. that while I was watching. I said, this must have been shot multi-cam kind of. I, mean, I, I think it allows also for, again, those long uninterrupted takes, which, again, crazy for the actors. They kind of have to, like, almost coordinate how they're pra- like practicing this before the actual take itself. Like, there's that one scene where one of the helper girls is going through and, like, you know, going into the kitchen to, like, get food ready for lunch or whatever. And then you cut to the other side of the, in the next room over, and they're discussing plans for a furnace. You kind of, you can kind of see her Seuss through the, through the, like, through the, I heard the shadow of the Seuss through the curtains, basically, right? You can tell this is literally happening just on the other side. It kind of adds to the whole theme of, like, the, the mundanity of evil, kind of, like, within the life, right? Yeah, I mean, the whole film seems to be like, you know, even going back to what you talked about with the sound design and the visuals and how there's a discrepancy between them, I think does go back to that notion of the banality of evil. These people are kind of blocking out um, the, you know, the essence of what they're doing and becoming very morally disengaged about it. And I think that comes about through this discrepancy like you were mentioning earlier. But for the camera setups, so this decision to shoot multicam, I think that one of the benefits that that adds is that it reduces the need to uh, continuously have, I mean, from an actor perspective, right? They don't need to do constant a number of takes, right? It's not like they say, okay, you know, we're going to do an X setup or we're going to do another setup. Um, instead, having them, this like fluid motion through the house kind of establishes a, a real, like you said, inhab- you know, feeling that they inhabit the space, a sense of routine, as well and that notion of there being this routine you know like where you know the maid you know prepares lunch and goes from room to room and serves the guests i think underscores the theme of the banality of evil which we were just discussing yeah i think i don't know for me again i have never worked on a film set but i think the thing i appreciate most about movies and film in general are the technical constructive elements like what goes into the making of a film and i think seeing how the choices they made during production 
led to this particular outcome, right? And the choices in pre-production that would lead to production came to the way that this film, and it's a very different film than Anatomy of a Fall, right? Um, just by the way that they were shot, the way that the script is, the way that everything is, right? Fundamentally different films, but they're two equally great films, I think, right? Right. I, I think they are definitely very different in the sense that Zone of Interest is almost anti-dramatic, Right. Yeah, it's very it's very slice of life, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and I think that um, that absence of the drama and the kind of the draining it of the kind of typical narratives that are imposed on stories like the Holocaust is what made it especially appealing to me. Um, and I think that all the elements of the craft, whether it be the you know this very digital looking cinematography or or the performances or the set design, Kind of contributed to. Yeah. For a while, I wasn't sorry. I, I thought, like, did they color correct this? It feels like they saw it on flat and just uploaded it in flats, basically, right? Yeah, it is like extremely kind of. I mean, I it kind of looks ungraded, but if you look closely, like there is a bit of shading here and there, but it does seem very, very digital looking, and that's like was very apparent to me when I was watching it. And something that uh, Glazer mentioned during the press conference after the film premiered was that he wanted to have a film that felt authorless, which is a really interesting choice of words to me that he wanted it to feel like it's something that not, that wasn't necessarily created, but it was almost like, you know, you just set up these cameras there and then they came out. It's almost like a documentary, right? Exactly. Yeah. Um, It's a documentary without, without being a documentary, which is really interesting, which, you know, leads me to one question, right? So toward the end, again, we're going to spoil the territory here. Um, You know, he's, away from he gets sent away from Auschwitz to another uh camp um and he gets news he's going to be sent back to Auschwitz right mm-hmm. and then he, he leaves like this Christmas party or whatever wherever he's at and then he looks down this like dark hallway and then it cuts to footage from the modern day Hol- uh, Holocaust Museum at Auschwitz right and it's films of the caretakers kind of cleaning up the the uh the the um like the 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 clothes that that they that they were taken right, kind of like the exhibits, and I wouldn't really quite know what to make of that because it kind of cuts. It ends very shortly after that, right? And I'm like, okay, so like, did he did, did he have a, a vision of like what his, what the future of his his quote unquote great work would end up being, right? To like it would just be reduced to this museum, or did he have a sense of what it would happen, or you know, I I have no idea what to make of that. What what did you make of that 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 choice of ending? Because I can see why the ending was there, right? To kind of see that. Almost a bit of a positive spin, that, uh, or not even a positive spin, but kind of like a reflective spin that you know this is evil, never again, so on and so forth, right? Um, kind of all those, all those, all those phrases um, that you know we will not forget that this happened, right? Um, for us as the modern audience. But what do you think that edit means from his perspective? So uh, I'm glad you brought that up because that was also one of the conversations I immediately had with other people I was seeing with at that time and. I feel like it can you can kind of go two ways, and I'm going to tell you which one I interpretation I prefer. On one hand, you can see it as you know we see him gagging, and then it cuts to this vision of like the future, and you see you know all of the exhibit of this displays of like the stolen clothes and the shoes and stuff, and it cuts back to um, back to his own timeline, right? And I at first I interpreted it that as you know he's growing a conscience, right? He's feeling a bit guilty about what he's done. He's kind of seeing like magnitude. Yeah, but we know that doesn't happen in real life. Oh, exactly. So I think the second interpretation, right, is that he's real. The reason he, you know, has that gagging and he like appears about, you know, looks like he's about to throw up. He looks sick, is because he realizes he has this vision of the future in which essentially the Nazis are defeated, 
right? So you, when we cut, when we do a flash forward and we see the museum exhibit and all of this evidence is being preserved for future generations, like the stolen clothes and the shoes and so forth. And he has this, that vision to him would indicate that in, in essence, the, their, you know, the Nazi campaign in essence failed. And so that's to me is how I interpreted that particular scene where he has a vision of the future in which there, his effort essentially was for naught. Uh, and I think those are kind of two different mm. ways you can look at that scene. Yeah, this is definitely one I think that's a bit of a thinker as 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 well, Fisher. Um, again, I think this is definitely a film where I think the more you are in tune and and, and like if if you resonate more with the technical production side of things, I think this is definitely like one of my one of this will be one of your favorite films of the year. I think um, in that regard, for sure. If you're like looking for a more dramatic, you know, heavily acted, heavily like you know, almost loud film, like this might not be the film for you. But I think for those that that it is, this will really be the film for you. I agree. Like I said earlier, it is anti-dramatic. It's very austere. And I almost feel like, you know, I, as much as I love this film, I do kind of wish it got a bit more attention because I don't feel like I've seen a film that is this austere, um, get that much attention during the Oscars, right? Like, I mean, Tatar, obviously from last year is a good example. It got a lot of nominations, but kind of went home empty handed, even though that was one of my uh, favorite picks for the Mm. awards that year. Um, and I feel like this, and I'm a little bit worried that this might fare a similar fate. You know, it is very uh, kind of sterile. It is um, occasionally a bit slow moving, but it is short, at least. Yeah, it is short. <laughs> Compared to Tar. Um, when, you know, Tar being, you know, two hours and 40 minutes. And so in of interest, I think it's only about an hour and 30 minutes. Um, about the same length as I think Under the Skin was. So hopefully that can be to its benefit well this one comes out wide uh, i believe early january uh maybe like about a week or so from when we're recording this so i'm sure you'll be going to see this like a third or fourth time at this point potentially yeah Yeah. (laughs) awesome well you know uh anything else you want to talk about uh, zone of interest before we hop to the last film for this episode um not really all right, um, sounds good. So, sounds yeah, good. I mean, we already talked about Sandra Huller for Anatomy of Fall, and I don't feel like I need to. Yeah, I mean, I don't think so. I think I think it's a really good year for actresses this year. Like we have, you know, Lily Gladstone from Kills of the Flower Moon. Um, we have Emma Stone in Poor Things, and then you know Huller for 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 Anatomy. Um, it's it, it would be crazy for her to get like like it's happened before, but like Huller getting double nominated for actress and supporting actress would be kind of insane. <laughs> I mean, didn't I think Kate Winslet got double? I know Scarlett Johansson's the most recent one to do it. Okay, um, yeah. he did for *Merit Story* and for *Jojo Rabbit*. Okay, got it. Yeah, um, but again, I think this is a very strong year for actresses in general. So we'll see if that happens or not. Um, in any case, the final film we're going to talk about, um, you know, is not one that was at Cannes, but it was. Um, it is. It was a relatively late breaker in the film festival. If, if Cannes is kind of like the kickoff for awards season, um, this one, you know, TIFF is kind of like the. Um, the real starting whistle, and this is this was a surprise. Everyone went into to, the TIFF expecting, you know, uh, the holdovers to get the People's People's Choice Award. Maybe the boy in the hair, and if you know the anime fans would come out in enough numbers to to support it. Uh, but no, it ended up going to uh, American Fiction, and so this is a first a film from uh, from journalist and writer Court Jefferson. This is their directorial debut, based on the 2011 novel Eraser by Percival Everett. Um, 
Uh, it follows the novelist Thelonious Monk Ellison, played by Jeffrey Wright, uh, who is frustrated at feeling pigeonholed as a black writer, uh, ends up writing a stereotypically black book under a pseudonym as kind of a joke, um, only for it to actually get widespread acclaim, much to his chagrin. Um, interspersed throughout uh, is you know stuff about his family and, and, and his family dynamic. Um, it ended up premiering at TIFF, where it did win the People's Choice Award um, after being released, and it was released uh, this December by Amazon MGM. Uh, in addition to the TIFF PC, it is also named AFI Top 10 Film of the Year. It has also been nominated for two Golden Globes, two Critics' Choice Awards, four Satellite Awards, and four Independent Spirit Awards. Uh, Metacritic has an 81 out of 43 reviews. Rotten Tomatoes, 93 out of 162 reviews, 8.3 score. And Letterboxd has a 3.76 out of 13,000 reviews. On Gold Derby, it is currently the seventh for Best Picture, I think mostly weighing off of that PCA nomination. Uh, Jeffrey Wright is currently number five for Best Actor. Sterling K. Brown, who plays his brother, is currently number seven for Supporting Actor. It's currently number four for adapted screenplay, and it was shortlisted, though relatively low in the rankings, at score at number twelve out of fifteen. Um, so yeah, um, you know, obviously, you know, this wasn't at Cannes, but Alex, when did you see uh, American Fiction? I saw it yesterday. <laughs> yesterday, okay, fair enough, fair enough. And when, what did you think of it since, since it's fresh on your mind? So there's, uh, I'll, so I'll begin with the good things, and then I'll begin with, uh, then I'll move on to the criticisms. So mm-hmm. I think. And what was really interesting to me about the film is that I think there's a lot of merit to the film's overall theme that, well, on one hand, it's really, you know, laudable that there's a lot of move to, in, you know, in the industry, in, in publishing towards more diverse representation. But then the question becomes, well, if we are having more representation, how can we also make it less stereotypical, right? And so that becomes the whole thesis of the film where you have this writer who doesn't want to be stereotyped or, you know, who doesn't want to be pigeonholed, like you mentioned earlier. And... I think that does have a lot of resonance now. There's these questions about, okay, you know, there is the representation, but is it good or not? Um, And I think that, you know, there is um, that, I guess, theme was something that struck me as really timely. However, I feel like a lot of the other points throughout the film, where we go into other aspects of the protagonist's life, you see his family life, his relationship to his his siblings, into his mother, into the housekeeper that he have. These kind of like B-plots just kind of fell apart. Um, and I think all, overall felt to me like uh, a very long, um, how shall I say it? It could have been a miniseries almost? Not actually, it's not even just that. It's that I don't feel that the characters are very well fleshed out, right? So, mm-hmm. you know, you have, you know, for instance, there's this, the sister was like this completely disposable, right? She dies within, and spoiler alert, within the first act. But doesn't really exert any influence into on the narrative for the rest of the film. And you got the brother who is you know, very stereotypically gay. He's doing drugs. He's you know sleeping around with other men. Um, just he's not really. I feel he didn't feel to me very individuated and didn't really um, serve. I think the overall function. Mm-hmm. I, I didn't. I didn't think it fit into the film his mm-hmm. characters weren't very interesting yeah. to me. i think so i think like yeah I'm, I'm somewhat mixed on the film right so i think this film was heavily marketed on the uh on the literary side of things right like the story of this author doesn't want me pigeonholed doesn't like kind of like the suffering porn uh suffering tra- like trauma porn uh that that you know, he sees black um you know black literature and the being so you know he makes this this joke it ends up getting away from him a little bit right um that 
I think like almost like a satire, right? You know, their lines like no one in Hollywood reads reads scripts. They have their assistants send them book reports or whatever, right? Um, and even stuff like you know, like literally the hardest I've laughed in the cinema the entire year was the scene where they were doing the they're, they're, like her, him and this other actress, this this other black act uh, author played by Issa Rae are part of this judging panel for the literary awards or whatever, right? And then his fake book, right, uh, ends up being the winning book um him and the other black author doesn't want to award at the top award the other three white authors do and then you know well it's three to two so democracy wins and then the one of the white judges is like man i just think it's so important nowadays to listen to black authors and it's literally framed that you have the three white authors on one side of the table the two black authors on the other side of the table and they're literally ignoring what the black authors are saying Literally the hardest I have laughed in cinema. I think I was I was that guy who was obnoxious to laughing in theaters. Um, just kind of like at that. I think that satire was the most spot on point. As far as the the family B plot stuff, that wasn't really marketed to me at all. Actually, funny thing, I ended up seeing. So I did double feature. I watched American Fiction into All of Us Strangers, um, and then at All of Us Strangers, there was a trailer for American Fiction I had never seen before that did focus more on the family element of it, right? So I think going in, the expectations maybe were a little bit off on what to expect, right? This family drama versus not. I think the family drama, I will give its credit. I think there for me, you know, I think as a minority child, right? I have, I also have two siblings, right? Thankfully, none of them have died yet, um, and none of, and and there are no crazy divorces going on in our families right now, right? Um, but um, there is, I I do see some similarities there. Like, I I kind of have to apologize to my sister because she kind of is like the 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 Tracy Ellis Ross uh, character, the older sister who ends up passing. She's kind of like the sis, the the responsible sister who ends up helping take care of her their elderly parents, right? Um, while everyone else kind of has moved away, right? I feel kind of bad because my sister, honestly, is kind of like the responsible one of, among me and my siblings, of, of our siblings, right? I kind of feel a little guilty because I'm kind of like monk in that I moved away. I'm a little bit distant from like what's happening day to day within my family, right? So I definitely felt some of that, right? And kind of like that dynamic. Um, and to, to Jeffrey Wright's credit, I think he did a pretty good job fleshing out his character I, as somebody who is somewhat self-important, right? There's this whole family drama of like, you know, he kind of takes after his dad. There are parents' issues in there. I think there was a, a thread there. I don't think it was entirely sewed up, like like you said, right? It wasn't entirely buttoned down. And I think the balance of the um, of the family drama to the literary stuff maybe should have been, it's probably like 75 family stuff, 25% literary stuff. I personally would have preferred like, 75% literary stuff, 25% family stuff to, 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 to flesh out a little bit, right? Um, that, was, that was my take on it. I do think, right, like, again, some hilarious satire moments in here that, that I definitely can see why I'd want the PCA. It's definitely a bit of a crowd pleaser uh, in, that, in that regard. Um, I think Jeffrey Wright, you know, could very well deserve that fifth, you know, best actor behind, like, you know, Killian Murphy for Oppenheimer, uh, Leonardo for uh, Kills the Flower Moon, Bradley Cooper uh, for Maestro, and um, I'm forgetting the fourth person that I'm thinking of for for Best Actor. Um, but uh, I, I, I definitely, uh, dang, I can't remember it now. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think Jeffrey Wright is a, is a worthy fifth fifth nominee here. Um, other than that, I think I think honestly that in in adapted screenplay maybe right. I think it's a very strong year for adapted screenplays as well. Um, so yeah, I mean, there's good here. I think it tried to do too much, 
and did nail everything. That's kind of like my critique of the Barbie movie as well. I think the Barbie movie tried to stick a lot into it as well. Didn't quite nail the landing on everything, but I applauded for the effort uh, to mm-hmm. some degree, right? Like, you know, it's not so simple where, for example, the part where he and the Issa Rae character, right, the the other black act, uh, author, they get into a discussion about, you know, black black literature, right, and how C seems to be serving the market and there's nothing – like, why do you have a problem with, you know, another black person getting their hustle? Is it because he's a woman uh, in literature as opposed to a male author, right? There's a whole other dynamic that they touch on. They don't quite delve into it as much as I would have liked, I think. Right, and I, I think that is also reflected to some extent in the way that they set up these various gag moments, right? So, yeah. and I, I think that was to me what ultimately caused the film not to work because throughout the whole film, you got threaded these little moments where we all wondering, okay, he's going to do these crazy things, this, you know, to be very stereotypical to try to put out this work, and hopefully, you know, the the edit white editor or or the judges will, you know will they accept it or not and then they do but then they repeat this type joke over and over again i feel like throughout the entire duration you could have seen more variety more variety would have been nice right like maybe not just the judges and the 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 the, um the publisher but maybe like the general audience like what are they thinking about the book as well right well yeah i mean i think at a certain point it's just the the way that the same point was just kind of hammered over and over mm. struck me as a little repetitive. Okay, yeah. So you would get these moments where he says, you know, I, I bet they're not going, I, I'm going to do this outrageous thing. I hope they don't accept it. And then they accept it. And then he like does the face palm and that kind of happens several times. Like a couple of times. Yeah, the head, the head desk and all that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Question. So the ending, I think, I think this kind of sums up in the ending, right? I feel like he kind of like Cord Jefferson kind of wrote himself into an ending where there wasn't really a satisfying ending, no matter what happened, right? Like it, it kind of goes, it kind of goes into this meta fourth wall break where he's talking to a, a director and saying, "That's how the movie ends," which maybe implies that the entire movie we've just seen is him pitching this movie, right, uh, to a director on on what movie to make, right? Um, and then he's like, "Well, how does it end?" You know, we have one ending where, like, well, you know, it's not just the the cut the black ending; it's the you know romantic comedy ending or the FBI agents come and sue them down as a black man trauma porn ending. Right. And it's like, what is like, what I I feel like it it, it wrote itself into a corner where it just couldn't get out of it. And so you kind of had to give these multiple endings to be able to get out of it um, in in a way that I I think is kind of emblematic of the film. What did you think? You know, I wasn't quite sure what to make of it. I mean, it kind of reminded me a bit of the ending of the film adaptation, Mm-hmm. Um, if you happen to have seen it, you know, directed by Spike Jones, written by Charlie Kaufman, in which you know details um, Charlie Kaufman's attempt to try to adapt this book about orchids, but then becomes about him trying to get into a film, and then the fil- ending of the film is just kind of goes haywire in terms of genre. And this film, this moment in American fiction, kind of reminded me of that a bit, kind of like a, a callback to past uh, films about you know great screenwriters, but. Then again, I think this is an example of another moment in the film where I don't feel like it quite fit into the overall point that I, I at least I was able to tell the film was trying to make. I don't know yet. I'm still thinking about it. Okay. I mean, I think I appreciate the swing, right? I appreciate the swing and the effort. I think better that he made it a film that's maybe a little bit messy, but has some good points to it rather than, you know, making a very drab by the numbers film, right? Which mm-hmm. kind of could be boring, right? So, I I don't I don't have too much else to say about about American fiction. It's you know it's not necessarily my favorite film of the year. I could see for some people it would be. And again, 
I I I I've been working on my top ten. I I have two top ten lists for my movies. I have a top ten best films of the year that I think were the most technically best uh best created films. Spoilers: Anatomy of Fall and Zone of Interest are both on that list. And then I have my top ten favorite films, which you know may not be the best film from a technical perspective, but you know generally a little bit more crowd pleasing blockbuster type films. Um, like you know for example, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume Three or Dungeons and Dragon movies are on there. This isn't on either list, but I did give it an honorable mention as the film that made me laugh the hardest in theaters, which I think, um, you know, I think deserves something, uh, at least some mention. So you know, I don't have too much more to mention unless there's anything else you want to you want to wrap up on, on any of these films. No, I'm just realizing that all these films have ambiguous endings, I suppose. I guess, so this, this, is not just the, this is not just the film festival. This is like an, an ambiguous ending uh, episode. <laughs> that, and then I just realized that, you know, with the... You know, did the son actually you know, in you know, Adam you fall have that conversation with the father? You know, what is the meaning of the flash forward in Zone of Interest, and why do we have these alternate endings for American fictions? I think that's all coming together. Look, now. like like a good editor, we f- we find the theme of the film in the edit. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly, exactly. All right, well. I think that's a good enough place to wrap it up as anything. We won't leave this ambiguous uh, for the ending. So, you know, you mentioned you're working on another horror film. Um, you know, anything else you want to shout out? You know, any other films that maybe you worked on that are getting released soon or anything else uh, that you want to shout out? Um, nothing at the moment that I can, that I haven't already mentioned. Um, I'm just thinking about what films are being released next year that I'm... Yeah, I was going to ask, like, what, fil- what other films uh, are you looking forward to coming out in the next year or so? Right, I mean, so I still haven't seen all of his strangers. So, okay. and I'm and I'm also a big fan of Andrew Haig's work. I you know love um, Weekend and Forty Five Years, so I'm I'm pretty you know excited for this one. Um, also, because you got two very excellent actors in the lead role, Andrew Scott and Paul Mescal, who I've both seen in. I will say, actually, to to give American fiction some credit, I did see kind of like a theme. Uh, I'm not going to spoil too much about about, about um, all of us things that you probably can't get from the trailers, um, but there is kind of a theme of coming to terms with uh, feeling alone. I think in the world, right? I think Monk, his character, feels alone in the world for whatever reason, and and him. I think part of the film is him learning to let people in. Um, you know, like like they say in the line, like you have to let people love all of you, right? And I think that's something. Watching that and watching that and American all of us strangers back to back, I kind of that was like a common point I saw between the two. So maybe that might be something to think to think about for for uh, American fiction to its credit. Yeah, I think that I think you made a good point. Okay, um, any any films from the last year, right? You know, you mentioned that Zone of Interest was your most favorite. Were there any other films in the race, even not in the Oscar Oscars race from this last year that you want to shout out? Right. So I did forget to mention a couple other films from Cannes that I um, saw. So Monster by Hirokazu Koreeda. <sighs> Was also quite um, enjoyable. I love Monster. That's also on my top ten best films of the year. For sure, I saw it when it was here in theaters. Um, and then what else did I see? I saw A Thousand and One. Mm-hmm. Um, very beautifully shot um, and, and small, intimate film. Do you get a chance to watch Perfect Dates when you at Cannes? No, I did not, unfortunately. I did, so I, I was saw- lucky. I it came one week to New York at the Angelical Film Theater, and. It, and that actually is similar is to um, to Zone of Interest in that it's also kind of like a documentary esque style slice of life, not as dark, not about as dark a subject matter. It's about a guy who cleans toilets, right? But finding the beauty in everyday urban life. Um, love Perfect Days. I, if you get to see it, I I would really love to see your perspective on that as well. 
Yeah, I mean, I I saw I got to see Vin Vendor's other film and some of the documentary about the artist when I was at um, when I was at Yan. So he had how, he had how did the three D work on it? I've heard it's it's a three D is a three D documentary. It is. So it, I was I knew I've seen his other film Pina about the uh, dancer Pina Bausch, and that was also done in three D. It was really um, I didn't get to see that film in three D, but I, I could have seen how it could have worked in you know with the movement throughout the space. In Anselm, it was pretty interesting because instead of a dancer, you've got you know a painter and sculptor. Um, so it's mostly the camera that's kind of like moving around these, you know, these sculptures and these objects, and you can really see the textures of the paintings. And that to me seemed to bring out the qualities of the artwork in a very interesting and unique way. All right. I think it was flowing at the Lincoln Center here, so maybe I'll try to see if it's still in theaters right now or not. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, you know, those are definitely some great films. And yeah, I mean, again, uh, it's always great to have you on the podcast, Alex. You know, great to always catch up and talk more about. I know, you know, throughout the year we're always like mentioning each other. Hey, this film seems really good, and, and so on. So we definitely appreciate having having another film friend to talk about to talk mm-hmm. about stuff with. Um, you know, I, any, any, any? Wait, you were going to say something? Yeah, I'm just trying to think. Did, were the Sundance films for next year already announced? Um, I, I think, think they were. They announced, they announced some of them. I don't know if they're all out. Um, but I will say one thing that actually, the one film that I am looking forward to from Sundance is they did a documentary about the Lenny Robredo uh, election uh, campaign uh, in the Philippines, which, you know, oh. as, as a Filipino, I'm, you know, obviously for me, a sad ending, but they're definitely one I'm looking forward to. Um, oh, I did also get to watch for uh, my friend Dakota from the Convo Zoom pod, who'll be on another episode of this uh, later in the season. I was able to get me a screener for The Missing, which is the Filipino international submission. It's like a rotoscope animation film, which I think was really well done as well. Oh, so wow. Okay. I think that's going to be at the Palm Springs Film Festival. Got so, it. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. Awesome. So, yeah, Alex, anything anything you want to share on social media? I know you're not super on social media. But I know you do have a letterbox. Um, anything anything you want to anything you want to plug if people want to see your film thoughts? Sure. So just to remind the listeners, my letterbox handle is a Atienza. So it's my first initial and then my last name. A A T I E N Z A. Awesome. Um, and yeah, uh, always looking forward to having you on. I'm sure you'll be on again next year. We'll we'll figure out you know what films so that can that you're going to be able to talk about having seen it in person. Um, but yeah, great to have you on as always, Alex. And uh, looking forward to talk, another year of film with you. And looking forward to and again, let me know when your projects come out later this year. I'll be able to plug them on the on the podcast. Great. Thank you very much, Paul. Awesome. Have a good one. Many thanks again to Alex for taking the time to share his thoughts about these three films with me. Um, definitely recommend you go follow him on his letterbox. Again, that is at A Atienza, um, linked in the show notes. In addition, you know, after we recorded, uh, Alex actually let me know he's starting his own Substack. Um, if you want to subscribe to that, um, it's just his full name, Alexander Atienza.substack.com. I'll link that in the show notes as well. Not only will he have his thoughts on films, but also on music, um, books, other media that he's interested in. So definitely recommend you subscribe there. Anyway, again, before we sign off, just a reminder that once again, I am running that survey of top films from 2023 and the most anticipated films of 2024, as well as putting putting together a mini letterbox panel for those interested in being involved. Link to that in the show notes. Um, and again, be sure to check out the Academy of Death Racers Film Festival starting this Friday the 5th, running through the 21st, where you can see nine of the shortlisted sorts for the Oscars consideration. In addition, there'll be bonus content uh, with, with various directors over on the Academy of Death Racers YouTube page, as well as the two that I I'm doing going to be dropping on this feed with the first one later this week. 
In any case, that wraps it up for this episode of the Oscars Death Race podcast. Let me know how your Death Race preparation is going over on Twitter at OscarsDRacecast or via email at OscarsDeathRacePodcast at gmail.com. Make sure you subscribe to the show or on your podcast service of choice, iTunes, Spotify, Google Play. And if you can, please review there or even just share it with a friend who loves movies. Any of that is super helpful. Uh, these will be linked in the show notes alongside my letterbox account under the username NinjaBoy, boy with an I. Um, also, be sure to check out the Oscar Race, Oscars Death Race subreddit, and the Academy of Death Racers Discord, as well as OscarsDeathRace.com and DeathRaceTracking.com. Uh, music is provided by Kevin MacLeod. Find his stuff at Incompetech.filmmaster.io. Editing production by NinjaBoy Media. That's it for this week. This has been part of the Oscars Death Race podcast. Until next time, I'll be here trying to watch all the Oscar nominees or die trying. Thank you.